so tonight we're going to be talking about um, the whole idea of can one person make a difference? But before we start that, I want to show you something. This was yesterday morning looking out my window. And I was so stunned looking at it. In fact, I posted it on Instagram. Some of you may have seen it on Instagram. But anyway, I thought, you know what, Lord? It was such a moment of wow, God, that, you know, we have all this going on, all this fear and what's happening and, you know, all the things that happen in our lives right now. And yet the sunrise came up. It was gorgeous. And I was just thinking that, God, you are powerful. You hung the stars in space. You watch over them. You watch over us. You have beautiful sunrises and beautiful sunsets. And it was such a moment of just, I just need to not be so fearful. I, not, I need to stop questioning and just know that I can trust somebody that could, first of all, create something like that. And we talked about last week how this is the damaged version. <laughs> and to think that somebody who could create something like that and sustain something like that is certainly able to take care of, uh, of our lives, isn't he? And so it was just a real a moment for me. So I wanted to share that with you. So um, any time you want to come over to my house about mm, 6 o'clock-ish or whatever, we can sit and you know, enjoy it together maybe. Anyway, you don't want to come that far, I don't think. But anyway, um, so our, our topic tonight in Esther chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, if you've got your Bible with you or your Bible app or phone or however you check it, check it out, we're going to start in the first verse. And this is really a very pivotal lesson in the book of, of Esther. So introduction, A, what can one person do? What can one person do? Haven't you felt that way here and there sometimes? You know, whether it's a work situation, a family situation, you know, I think especially as women, sometimes, you know, as we're going through a difficult time, but how can I change that situation and make it better? What can I do? It's just me, for goodness sake. You know, I'm not a Harvard grad or I'm not, you know, whatever. And we, we kind of second guess ourselves. What is it that I could possibly contribute to this situation? There's a great uh, well-known author, Edward Hale, and he said this, I'm only one, but I'm still one. I cannot do everything, but I can still do something. And because I, can, I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Isn't that good? And I think it's in your book, right? Yes. So you can look at it anytime you want. When you're feeling that way of what can I do kind of thing, just look at that. I, I really, that really spoke hugely to me. So be in, on your outline. There are many examples around us, and I'm sure you could share them around, or um, if you're doing Zoom with your group or whatever, you could talk about examples of extraordinary <coughs> differences made by one ordinary person. Many examples. For example... In 1776, one vote gave the United States the English language rather than German. Isn't that amazing? In 1845, uh, one vote brought Texas into the Union. One vote. One homeschool mom in Ohio, through her efforts and convictions, changed the law regarding schooling at home. 
And oh my goodness, have we benefited from that in, in this time with um, what's going on within families. My own, for example, Tori is homeschooling her two boys and loving it. It's just such an amazing experience. Because of that one mom who worked and worked and worked so that she could get that passed. One grief-stricken mom who had lost her daughter, Amber, to abduction and murder through persistent and persistence and being willing to expose her pain was the catalyst to pass a law regarding abducted children. Have you seen Amber, Amber Alert? Because of this one mom who was willing to go before the legislature and, and open up about how painful. Can you imagine talking about that? But she so believed in doing something for it not to happen again, that she was willing to open her heart about that. We've talked often about Wilberforce from England, um, who really was a man who persisted until slavery was abolished from the, the English empire. We've talked about that in the past. So tonight, we're gonna to be studying how Esther, only one person, had she not been willing to fulfill God's plan for her, what could have happened? What could have happened? Imagine what could have happened. I love that God included this in scripture because it shows that God does use ordinary people. And Esther, you know, at this point, beautiful, now the queen and all those kinds of things. But we know from our study how ordinary her little life was before she came to the palace. We uh, are in unprecedented times right now. We've talked about that week after week. <clears throat> and so we want to find out what has he called you to do? What has he called me to do in these times? And we can begin to look at the amazing plan God had for Esther. So we're going to pause for a moment to see what is going on around the empire at the news of the king's edict. Remember last week we talked about how Haman talked him into signing a death warrant for every Jew throughout the Persian Empire. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And they kind of just say, oh yeah, okay, here, here's my ring. Let's sign it and we'll go on. Wow. So considering what was going on, we're going to talk about some lessons learned in mourning. Lessons learned in mourning. A on your outline, what was the situation? Look at chapter four with me, verse one through three. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and, sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Can you imagine the pain and fear in the lives of these people? That uh, for a full year, we learned last um, uh, week about the months, that the, the uh, edict came out in this month and it was gonna be taken, uh, gonna be put operational in that month. And so they had an entire year that they had to think about the fact that they were gonna be exterminated. Their children, their wives, their families, everybody around them 
and they had, they had to think about it for an entire year. You can just imagine how evil and cruel that was for these people to have to figure out, wow, what, am I, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? B, question when we think about that is, is it appropriate to mourn? When a national or international catastrophe happens, is it okay as believers to mourn? I don't know if you remember um, when 9-11 hit us. How many years ago was that? Coming up on 20, I think, right? And do you remember how we band together is, as, a, as a country? Christians, non, whatever, we prayed. Um, the churches you know, were filled with people coming in to pray together and say, what's going on, God? And there was a, a banning together of the community. Number one, it is a time when we're going through difficulties like that, a time of unity. These Jewish people all over the empire were mourning together. Um, and we've seen that not only in the 9-11 incidents, but when hurricanes have hit places, like in New Orleans. We've seen our country band together. We've seen churches band together and go to a, a demolished area and help and, and bring food and so forth. Um, I, I remember um, Samaritan's Purse banding together and going into New Orleans and making sure that everybody was fed and clothed and all those kinds of things. It's a blessing to see churches and organizations band together to put their mourning into action to help those beleaguered, beleaguered people in their midst. The situation in Israel was an absolute edict. There was no lobbying their congressmen. <laughs> this was done. It was uh, under the signet ring of their absolute monarch. So, how about that? Mourning is also, number two, a time of release. Not only is it a time of unity, it is a time of release. Sometimes we think that it's not so spiritual to show grief and deep despair. I'll never forget a friend of mine learning that a, a mutual friend of ours had just been diagnosed with melanoma. And she said, is it okay to be upset about this? Or is it sort of like not trusting God if I'm upset? No, we need to be upset. We need to share. We need to pray about it. It's, it's a good thing to say, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hurting here. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray for our, our mutual friend. We've seen that uh, um, in Eastern cultures. They knew and know um, that grieving is a release. You've seen on the news when a leader dies in some of these countries overseas, and there are just hundreds of thousands of uh, grievers and, and crying and, and all that as they're following their leader, perhaps to their funeral or whatever it is. Even Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five when he found out that uh, Lazarus had died. But I think it was more, I don't want to get off on all this, but I don't think it was so much that Lazarus had died because he knew he was going to bring him back to life. But just the people were so grief-stricken. And he was sharing with these beloved friends of his. So what was the sackcloth and ashes? It was a Jewish custom of mourning in times of deep remorse and grief to wear sackcloth and ashes. It was loose-fitting goat's hair cloth. Doesn't that sound wonderful? <laughs> I mean, really, that would not be my choice of what I want to wear when I was already grief-stricken. But anyway and sitting on a pile of ashes. And that, that was something that they were, I don't know what 
century they quit doing that, but in the day that was their symbol of remorse to signify they were in utter pain and only God could restore them. So it reflected, number three, a time of dependence on God. So the first place Mordecai and the Jewish people went was to their God. Um, a friend of mine, Diana Whiteman, sent me today. She didn't even know what I was teaching yet. And she sent me a, a Corey Tenboon quote. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And that was, wasn't that good? Is it your steering wheel? Is, is prayer your steering wheel that gets you through your rugged times? Or is it, oh yeah, by the way, I need to pray about that. I love that quote. Um, because for them, when they, they uh, shred their clothing and put on the goat's and all that kind of thing and sat on the ashes it was showing their dependence on God look at the second half of three with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes fasting would imply again their utter dependence on God so often unfortunately it can be the last place we go rather than the first place when we hear some bad news or we're <clears throat> grief-stricken or whatever it is, sometimes it's the last place. Sometimes it becomes our spare wheel, doesn't it? Sometimes. Spare tire. Four, it is also a time to prepare for action. We should mourn the condition of the family in our nation. We should mourn the rampant drugs and pornography and abuse. We should mourn the moral decline of our country. But we must put on sackcloth and ashes and personally turn it over into a dependence on God. Lord, look what's happening in our country right now. Please, would you intervene and have it be the first place that we go. Then be willing to do our part, even if it's all alone. And this is where we're going to see Esther shine. Esther goes into action. A, what was Esther's first response? Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So first of all, notice that she responds with empathy. She's very saddened by that. We learn that she's in deep distress, the verse says. Esther was, um, here she was in opulence. She was uh, living in the palace as a, the queen and could have probably had anything she wanted. And yet when she heard that her people were suffering, particularly Mordecai, she responded with empathy. It does not, uh, being in that setting did not cause her to lose her compassion and concern for her people. And don't we fight that in our own lives? You know, I, I've told you the story about one of our single moms who's now in one of our homes here and how she had no housing. And so she and her, her um, children were living in the back of her car. And we tend to hear a story like that, and sometimes we feel like, well, thank goodness, thank you, Lord, that that wasn't my children, and then we move on, rather than responding in compassion. Esther is responding in, um, in compassion. But look what she does, number two. She responds with a quick fix. At first, it's very surface what she does. She goes, wait a minute, please send these out to Mordecai. Let's, let's, let me send him some clean clothes so he doesn't have to sit in those ashes anymore. Like that's going to change everything. 
It was just kind of a, a sort of a automatic response, a quick fix. And again, don't we have that tendency in our, uh, our own lives? So we can't fault Esther in her distress. She jumps to do something that really doesn't show that she understands what's going on in their lives. Number three, she responds then, thankfully, <laughs> to getting more information. Look at verses five through nine. Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathach, now I really messed myself up, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money... Uh, that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree um, that it might to, for him to show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hadhach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Do you notice the care with which Mordecai presents to her the problem? She, he does not want her to miss anything in the presentation. Thank you for sending me clean clothes, Esther, but let me just tell you what is really going on. Let me really fill you in here. He probably also wanted her to get the emotional impact of reading the horror for herself and actually reading the, the edict that was handed down. But he was such a wise man. He didn't want her to, he wanted her to have the facts and not just rumors. So how does she respond? Number four, she responds with fear. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then Esther spoke to Hadhach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, this is very interesting, as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Very interesting. What a natural response. It's, it's an emotion that we're all familiar with, the emotion of fear and inadequacy. To her, to become involved was just not just a sacrifice of time, but it could cost her her life. If she walked in to the court and he didn't feel like seeing her that day, she would be killed. Wow. She knew that. We're called to do something. Our fear is not that we're going to lose our lives. It's more in the vein of inadequacy or fear of losing our pride or something like that. But look at the, the end of verse 11 again. Um, I used to be the king's choice. He liked me the best of everybody. What if the king has become interested in someone else in the meantime? Maybe there's some other girl from the kingdom or the realm that he likes better now because he hasn't called me in for 30 days. Would he see me as arrogant or brazen to come waltzing in and break the law of how I'm not supposed to come into the court unless he summons me? And I love that God included that in the story because it is so real, so real, that fear of what's going to happen to me if I carry this out, if I do my part to help out here, what's going to happen to me? Um, 
there's so much for me to process. I need to process. So often when something is not something that we easily, we feel good about ourselves, um, we, you know, we kind of hastily respond, oh boy, I, that, mm, I, I can't see myself doing that. And we kind of respond that way. B, how did Mordecai respond to her? Number one, what did he say? We see here the wisdom of Mordecai as he carefully picks his word. He knows his foster daughter, and he has raised a woman of character. He knows uh, what she's made of and how to appeal to her sense of loyalty and courage. And it's just such a good example of good parenting for us to know our children so well that we know how to get across to them in an effective way. Um, look at verses 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this moment, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Probably one of the most famous lines in all of Esther, chapter 4, verse 14b. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. First of all, first thing he does is point out her own danger. Now, this is my opinion, but I don't think he pointed that out to motivate her to save her own skin. I think it was rather to jolt her into reality at how seriously this how serious this situation was. I think he was he was not saying, you know, you know, you might die too, honey. Wasn't that as much as do you realize that anybody, any Jew, whether you're in the palace or in the streets or whether you're in the opposite end of the kingdom, you will lose your life. So I think he was he said it to jolt her into reality. Number two. What was the significance of his words? Notice that he says, relief and deliverance will come from somewhere in the first part of 14. In other words, God will save his people. <laughs> um, and he's pointing to the fact that this is God's plan for his people to be saved. And if it's God's plan, he will provide the strength for somebody to do it. He's emphasizing to her, Esther, Think if, it's, if God is going to raise somebody out. If you're not willing to do it, he will raise somebody uh, else up to save his people. Why do you think you, God put you in this place in the first place? Why do you think he, God arranged for you to be the one that became the queen of all of Persia? Why do you think? I think for such a time as this. Uh, it's not just to enjoy a cushy life. It is to do your task, whatever God has called you to do. Number three, what did it reveal about him, Mordecai? I think it gave a glimpse of his faith in God. He knew the character of God and that he knew that God would save his people. It showed his wisdom to see there must be some divine providential reason for Esther's being in the harem. It must have all come together for this godly man. When he heard about the edict, when he heard that all of them were going to lose their life, and oh my goodness, and here's my daughter, a foster daughter, in the palace. Of course, look what God is doing. And I think it came, all came together for Mordecai. What can we learn? 
If God calls us to something, what will he do? He will empower us, won't he? He will, if we're called to step up to do something difficult for him, he will equip us. One of my favorite verses, um, <clears throat> Apostle Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, my message and my preaching were not with wise per persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Isn't that a great verse? That when we're called to do something that is not something that we're comfortable with, something that is maybe not in our area of gifting, that it reveals God's power in our life rather than our own abilities or, or whatever. He will empower us. God will empower us. He just wants availability. Another great lesson um, as we're sailing through life and working out our stuff and all that, can we or could we sometimes be so caught up in what we're doing and involved with that we miss God's divine design for our lives? I don't want that, do you? Even if it's something difficult, even if it's something that's out of my comfort zone, I want to be not so caught up in my everyday stuff that I miss what God is calling me to do. That was God's design for divine design for Esther. We can see it from this perspective. Like Esther, would Mordecai say to you and me, are you taking actions he has for you, for me, learning these lessons? Are you taking action on what God has called you to do? Who knows that you did not come to earth for such a time as this? You can fill in the blanks, whatever that time is in your own life. What is it that maybe it's becoming clearer and clearer? This is what God had me come to the earth for right now why he still left me here what is it that he has for me to do can god use one person absolutely he uh, purposed to use this one young jewish girl what does he want for you to do just like me no one else what is there something that what is the one thing that god has for you to do i love this quote from um, Chuck Swindoll as he describes what Esther, how Esther decides. Mordecai is at that moment when you can step forward and help your children um, know the, help the children value being brave. So when Hatch, here we go again, um, comes to him with Esther's answer, Mordecai tightens his sash around his sackcloth and says the hard thing. He appeals to her character. I smile with great delight as I imagine Mordecai's uh, passion as he stated these eloquent, eloquent words, three significant sentences that, if acted upon, would alter the history of the Jews. Did you come to the palace for such a time as this, basically, is what he is saying. Wow. C, what was Esther's decision? What was Esther's decision? In her response, we see Esther rise in statue from a beauty queen to see her ready to move into action for the Lord. The key, no matter the cost, no matter the cost. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
In other words, she's saying, you know, I'm just putting my, my life in God's hands. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to step up and do it. I feel led to do this. And whatever happens to me, I'm in God's hands, is basically what she's saying. Wow, you can see why God was able to use her, can't you? That she had that tenacity and that I'm going to go do this thing. And my life doesn't matter. Wow. Um, number one, what character traits do we see? First, we see A, personal sacrifice. Sacrifice. She expresses that God's cause is more important. God may um, protect me, but it really doesn't matter. If I perish, I perish. What matters is that I've done the right thing, done what God has called me to do. I will go, is her resolve. B, we see action, not outcome. What she is saying is the outcome doesn't really matter, does it? I just know uh, that I need to do, what matters is I do what I'm supposed to do. The outcome is God's business. What's he going to do? It, 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 when I walk into that, that court, is, am I going to lose my life? Or is the king going to listen? Or what is he going to do? It doesn't really matter. It's all up to God. I just need to do what I'm called to do. I just need to step up and do my part. Doesn't God need warrior women like that today? Do you remember a couple years ago, maybe it was even last year, that we all got that picture of that beautiful warrior woman. Do you remember that? And she, you know, was very feminine and she was holding a rose. I have it in my car. So if you don't have one and you want to see it, just, you know, come on, follow me to the car and I'll show it to you. Anyway. Um, and she has a rose, so she's very, very feminine, beautiful face. But she is in armor. She is a warrior. She's got a sword strapped to her side. And that just really gripped me when I saw that for the first time. I can't remember what we were studying at the time. I don't know if you remember, Pam, but anyway. Um, the point being that that is the kind of woman that God wants. We want to be everything that we are meant to be as women, but we want to be willing to fight and do what God has called us to do, to step up to the plate. God needs warriors. What a challenge to be so committed to his call that self and comfort, safety are irrelevant. There was a, a couple in a small group I was involved with a few years ago, and um, they just felt very called to go as missionaries to a, a people group that had never, ever, ever heard about Jesus Christ in a rainforest of South America. Can you imagine? Talk about self-sacrifice. <laughs> just leave the comforts of the United States of America and go to some rainforest um, to these people that had never heard about Jesus and they really wanted to go. I haven't heard a peep from them for years, but praying that they're all doing okay. May we be that ready to be ready to do what we are asked to do. We spend so much time worrying about ourselves that sometimes we can render ourselves useless to God. See, we also see in her life a dependence on God. My focus needs to be on him. My welfare and comfort are in his hands. I will go, she said. If I perish, I perish. Wow, what an attitude we need. D, what was Esther's preparation? We see a truly courageous and mature woman emerging here. The most important aspect of Esther's plan was a time for spiritual preparedness. Look at the first, remember the first part of, of verse 16. When this is done, then I will go. 
until she was spiritually ready, she would not rush in. She was going to have a feast on her behalf. No, a fast on her behalf. Anyway, such an important concept that when we are going to do God's work, we need to be ready. I'll never forget a few, few years ago, I heard about a um, former president of Wheaton College. And he, uh, several presidents ago, and he would every night at 2 o'clock, for however long it took him, he would pray for each and every student at Wheaton College at that time. Can you imagine? Now, I don't know if they were right then under when he was a president or not, but some of the, the uh, graduates of Wheaton College, Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, um, oh, my dad, my mom. <laughs> I don't know if they were there at that time, but that was the kind of commitment that this president had to get up at two o'clock in the morning and pray through the rest of the night for these students. And what did God do through his prayers? Amazing things. If nobody else besides Billy and Ruth Graham, wow, many, many Christian greats, um, some that we don't know <laughs> that God used mightily. But yes, Jim Elliott was one of them. Anyway, how about Elizabeth Elliot? I wonder if she went. They probably met there, didn't they? Yeah, wow. Doing what God has called us to do. Number one, first, what did she do? She fasted and prayed. Obviously, this was not just about food. She said fast, and, but when she said fast, we know that it was always in the Old Testament, just as it is in our lives, it was in conjunction with prayer. But remember that in the book of Esther, God's name was not mentioned. We talked about why and all that, that first lesson. So she didn't say, by the way, pray and fast for me. She said fast, but it was clear that that was the intention. Please pray for me. Give up food and all the niceties of life so that you can pray in earnest for her. Wow. For Esther, I'm sure the fast was a preparation in two-fold significance. A, first, to yield self to God's plan. What do you have for me here, Lord? Show me how to handle it. What to say, Lord, reveal to me, you know, what, what should be the strategy of approaching this absolute monarch when if he doesn't like the fact that I walked into his presence, could have me executed? What should I say? How should I do it? When should I do it? And just kind of yielding him, herself to him. Secondly, to yield self to God's preparation of you, preparation of you to do his work, we need to be ready, cleansed, pure vessels. We have to uh, have done business with God ourselves. Lord, is there anything in my life that's displeasing for you to you before I go in to do that task for you? Is there anything that I need to confess and have you cleanse me? Create in me a, cl a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or have we cleansed ourselves as we go into especially a spiritually difficult time, maybe sharing with somebody at work that is not a believer or a neighbor or whatever it might be or a difficult family member or whatever. Lord, is there anything in my life that would clog my conduit to you? Show me and let me do business with you before I go into this very difficult part uh, uh, and this very difficult assignment that you've given 
given me. So number one, first she asks for fasting and prayer, prayer. And then number two, she asks for intercession. She asks for, for help. Look at verse 16 again. Go gather all the Jews found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. She could have prayed and fasted all by herself. Would God have heard? Absolutely. However, there are times when we need prayer, the support of each other, uh, not only to storm the gates of heaven, but for our sakes as well. I think it, it, it strengthens us when we know I've got my whole team, my whole group, my whole table, whatever it is, praying for me. That, that, um, that, that we're not just praying by ourselves, even though God, of course, hears our prayers, just of one person, but to feel the confidence of coming together with others in prayer. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, for where two and three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I think there's power in numbers that also are encouragement to us and to Esther, as she was asking the, all the people in Susa to pray for her, to know that they were um, that there were so many people lifting in, a, in prayer that they were together in this effort to prepare her to go into the king to save all of her people. That's why I feel that we are so blessed at this Bible study to have this urgent prayer team for you all to be involved in the urgent prayer team. Thank you, Pam Blahos, that weekly sends out needs. And we have had many, many answers to prayer. And even when the answers have been no and not gone the way uh, we've expected, we felt that support system. And, and I, many, many of you and other women who have been involved in the Bible study over the years have said, what a blessing to know that people are praying for me in that number. It's part of our DNA here that we're praying for, no, for one another. We, when we pray in agreement, there is communi communality of purpose of the body. There's unleashing of the power. When the church prays, it helps us in banding together and it helps us as we are doing spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6 talks about that, praying for all the saints with all prayer and supplication. And that's in the part where he's talking, where Paul's talking about putting on the full armor of God as we go into battle with the evil one. Prayer is part of um, grooming ourselves and preparing ourselves for battle. In summary, Notice the pro progression of response when God calls us to do something to make a difference like Esther. First, mourn. A realization that only God can fix it. To mourn um, over a situation. Mourn over the sadness of seeing something happening that is contrary to what God would have us do. Realize that I must get involved, emotional involvement. I've got to do something. If, I, if, you know, if I'm mourning over a situation that's going on, what's my role, Lord? What can I do? What's my place in all this? Des decide an act of my will. I will do what God wants me to do. Next, commit. No matter what the personal cost, my welfare is in more capable hands than mine. And then prepare. I must prepare to hear God's plan and be personally, spiritually ready to do it. I don't know what God is calling you to do in these dark times right now. And I just think, again, uh, how timely 
the study is for all of us as we're going through such, you know, trying, dark, difficult times. Wow, is there, is there a major life change? Is there getting involved in an area of society that needs changing? Is it an area of service? Agree with him and then do the steps. Get into his divine design for you. Find out what he has for you and how you can contribute in this time. A.W. Tozer said this, the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. God moves undisturbed and unhindered toward the fulfillment of these eternal purposes which he purposed in Christ Jesus before the world began. God is not going to be hindered. Are we going to be a part of that sovereign plan? The sun rises every day. The sun rises every day. Let's not forget who raises that sun.